I'm Paul Gross. I beat the often path by working on climate tech hardware and specifically a device that captures the carbon emissions straight from the tailpipe of a semi-truck. We capture about 80% of the truck's CO2, sell it, and share the revenue with trucking companies so the device pays for itself and we help them reduce their carbon emissions. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we shine a spotlight on people who are actually solving the problems that face us to give us better templates for how we can live our lives in these crazy times. Joining me today is Paul Gross, the CEO, the co-CEO, and co-founder of Remora, a startup that captures carbon emissions directly from semi-trucks as they drive. This tech, called a mobile carbon capture system, is the first of its kind to be commercialized anywhere in the world. Remora's system can be retrofitted onto existing diesel trucks, capturing and storing their carbon. And this is a big deal, folks, because there are over 2 million semis in the U.S. on the road right now alone. So they've raised millions in funding, and they're already working with major brands to help reduce total carbon emissions globally. Paul himself was listed to Forbes 30 Under 30, and he has an inspiring story for us all. So here's Paul Gross of Remora. Well, welcome to the show, Paul. It's really great to have you here, but uh, you're a little bit too late because trucks are going to be electrified, so there's no need for your solution. I've looked at your website, and that's it's official. So why even bother? It's a great question. Um, you know, I think one of the things that we've seen, um, so my co-founder, Christina, uh, created the EPA's Advanced Test Program for Electric Vehicles. My co-founder, Eric, built electric buses and trucks before this. So we totally see the value of electrification. I think it can be a great solution for some sectors, like cars, smaller trucks. The problem is batteries are incredibly heavy. And when it comes to hauling big loads long distances, it's really, really hard to electrify those types of vehicles. So that's why you know we're a lot less likely to see electric cargo ships or electric airplanes. Um, and similarly for electric trucks, you know they're great for these shorter routes, but for the long haul heavy duty routes across the country, you're talking about cutting a third to half of the entire truck's payload capacity. Uh, just by you know putting all those batteries on board, and that's really not something we can do when seventy percent of all goods in the U.S. are on a semi truck at some point in their lifetime. A third to a half. How heavy are we talking about here? Yeah. So for you know electrifying about five hundred miles of travel on a semi truck, we're talking about ten tons of batteries. Um, so it's wow. it's a really significant number, um, and then that just grows if you're trying to really replicate the range of a diesel semi-truck, which is thousands of miles, you'd be maxing out the entire truck's payload capacity just with batteries. So is that feasible at all? Is there any reason to pursue that? Because I know some people are. Absolutely. We should be pursuing every possible way to decarbonize semi-trucks. It's one of the largest sectors of emissions in the US. I mean, transportation is the largest, and then within that, semi-trucks have an outsized share. Um, And we should be looking at all different types of solutions, electrification, hydrogen, alternative fuels, um, and carbon capture. Um, We just think carbon capture is going to be the best solution, but we would love to see other solutions be tried as well. And I think, you know, for semi-trucks, but for a lot of other sectors of the economy as well, we need to get out of the kind of silver bullet mentality and, and, and get into the kind of just all the above just trying different things mentality um, where I bet, you know, if you look at the industry 20 years from now, it's successfully decarbonized. We're going to see a lot of different solutions playing a role to get to that, 
to get to that end goal. So that's that's our view, and that's why we're so focused on mobile carbon capture. Well, that makes sense. And to your point, I think not a lot of people are aware of the sheer variety of solutions that are being worked on by smart people such as yourself. And I certainly wasn't before I started doing this show, but 130 some interviews later, I've gotten to learn about a lot of the different solutions. And what strikes me is that at this point, I've heard many, many wildly different answers to how we can draw down carbon or how we can sequester carbon. All of them plausible and interesting in their own way, all of them approaching the problem from a different angle, and quite frankly, stuff that I had no idea was out there. I had no clue. I mean, you know all these industries are bad. We know that shipping is bad. We know that trucks are bad. We know that transportation is bad. We know that there are so many different facets of our life that are bad. And we also know that carbon capture is one of the most important things that we can possibly do. But this represents a new method and a new mechanism that we haven't covered yet on this show. And I, I think it's it's ultra fascinating. So describe to us how you came about learning to approach the problem from this angle. Why did you figure out that this was the place you wanted to dive in here? I looked at all of the different climate technologies that had successfully scaled. And I think the key sort of commonality between wind, solar panels, batteries, is that they're all modular repeatable technologies that can be manufactured so as we manufacture more and more of something it gets cheaper and cheaper and i think one of the things that to, to notice is the us is really really good at manufacturing but really really bad at construction or big big kind of one-time projects everything is over budget and years behind and what i saw is carbon capture as you said is a super important piece of the puzzle Every UN report talks about how important carbon capture is going to be. But our Absolutely. only approach to carbon capture was in the construction bucket, where we were retrofitting these one-off industrial facilities. It would take you know years of planning. Uh, budgets would be overrun. You know, it'd be lots of capital expenditure up front. And we weren't taking carbon capture and putting it into a kind of modular, repeatable form factor um, that has been so successful for other climate technologies. So my initial question was, how can we make carbon capture modular and repeatable? And that's how I came onto this idea of mobile carbon capture on a semi-truck. Okay. Well, in the video on your website, you described yourself as coming from a, a hippie school. <laughs> you, uh, <laughs> you said you had a hippie roots and then you learned about uh, climate change in general. Is that something you yes. took with you? I mean, has that really been the case ever since you learned about greenhouse gases? You've been just jonesing for a way to solve this? <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's always been something that kind of weighed on me. I I did go to quite a hippie school. I You know, they... <laughs> The we Bay did huge yeah. units on yeah i grew up in san francisco um right we did we did units on how to compost appropriately and how to recycle and um we had singing time every day you know it's it, it was something it was just a, taken for granted that caring for our planet and um you know really really taking climate change seriously is, is something that everyone needed to do earth day was like the biggest celebration of the year at, at my school and nice. um you know I think that just really stuck with me and almost was this kind of starting assumption that whatever I did would need to have some uh, interaction with climate change because this is, like it or not, a problem that's just getting worse and it's going to affect all of our lives and it's you know it's going to dramatically change our way of life if we're not able to do something really rapidly in the next couple decades. I completely agree. I grew up in the exact opposite environment in the middle of America where it's like, Earth Day, shut up! What are you talking about, Earth Day? 
You know, if one person had a flag with a picture of the earth on it, it'd get yelled at. That violates the <laughs> HOA rules. Uh, but it's good that you had that background and you took it seriously and you took it with you and that you actually did something about it, the step that so few, yeah. pe- few people do. So that's nice. Um, now, question. On your website, you say that the a truck driving this modular, manufacturable, repeatable, scalable tech that you have created, which looks super cool, will be the equivalent of planting 6,500 trees per year, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. So why do this instead of just planting 6,500 trees per year, if we're going to make that kind of comparison? It's a great question. So I think the really important difference is we need to look at what ends up happening to that carbon dioxide. So first of all, we're, we're being, I think, pretty generous to trees in the sense that we're looking at... Um, we're looking at mature trees. So after a tree has been growing for 10 years, it captures about 50 pounds of carbon dioxide per year. Obviously, on average, depends on the exact tree. Um, but so we're, we're making the comparison after the tree's been, been alive for a while. Um, I think the other thing to say is if that tree decomposes, releases the carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere, if the tree burns down, it releases the carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere. Um, so there's much more of a, a cyclic process there where often the carbon dioxide that's temporarily captured by the tree goes back into circulation. I think by comparison, when we capture carbon dioxide, we take that carbon dioxide and we sequester it permanently, either in an EPA certified well underground where it eventually turns back into rock or by pumping it into, for instance, concrete where it gets basically turns into calcium carbonate and and gets permanently sequestered. So either way, the carbon dioxide that we're capturing, it gets taken out of circulation forever so that it never goes back into the atmosphere. And and that's a really important difference. Mm, Makes sense. And the process that you described, so it's basically a modular thing that attaches to the back of a semi-truck, or the, the, the cab of a truck, I guess you would say. And the yeah. idea is that while the trucker is filling up for gas, they're also offloading their carbon at the same time. So you're filling up with gas, exactly. you're offloading the carbon. And is there a mechanism in place for that to happen? Or is that something that has to be installed at gas stations for this to work at scale? Yeah. So that's something that we're installing first at our customers' distribution centers and then at truck stops as we grow. We've already installed a bunch of CO2 offload tanks at our initial pilot partners distribution centers. Um, these are literally off the shelf carbon dioxide tanks. We just buy them, put them on the ground, um, hook them up to electrical and they're ready to go. It's a very low lift. Um, and they're also literally 10 times cheaper than an electric charging station. Um, they don't require any of the grid upgrades or anything else. So it's a pretty straightforward piece of equipment to install. Um, and as you say, the offloading process is dead simple. The driver just pulls up to one of these tanks, hooks a hose to the side of the device, device pumps the CO2 out into the tank, and then the driver detaches the hose. They don't have to take anything off the truck or put anything new on the truck. And um, you know the whole process just takes 15 minutes. So it's faster than refueling a, a semi-truck. Um, and as we grow, we'll be installing these tanks at truck stops so that folks can offload you know, while they're they're on a cross-country route and not just at the end of their round trip at the distribution center. That makes sense. And you mentioned 
concrete manufacture, which for those who have been paying attention, concrete is an enormously wasteful process. It's also one of the scariest parts of our modern world, if I'm not mistaken, because it takes a number of resources that are scarce. So what role does carbon dioxide play in in creating concrete? How does it make that part of things better? There are a number of really cool new companies working on using carbon dioxide to cure concrete or in various parts of the concrete production process. Um, The curing part is pretty simple. The concrete is baked in these essentially big ovens to really oversimplify. And if you inject the carbon dioxide into that oven during the curing process, the concrete actually uptakes the carbon dioxide. So the CO2 turns into calcium carbonate and becomes part of the concrete. And the reason that's good is it makes the concrete stronger. And in some cases, it also makes the concrete cheaper because you're using less Portland cement, which is an expensive ingredient in concrete. That means you get the stronger, cheaper concrete that's also sequestering carbon dioxide. That's the kind of product that I think everyone should be really excited about. And there are a lot of great companies working on it. Um, So for us, you know, we're not developing that technology. We just take our CO2 and sell it to the concrete producers that are already using that technology. That's super cool. Um, okay, so we've got this really interesting process. I also love about your story that you have this cool co-founder story because you have two co-founders, right? In addition yep. to yourself. That's right. So it's often been said that it's better in Silicon Valley and in the startup land to have a co-founder. You have a couple. And when I see your story of how you met your co-founder, it seems really interesting. Also because you seem to have complementary skill sets. They often say that one co-founder should be more of the salesperson. The other one should be more of a technical co-founder. Do you think that you followed the playbook in that sense? Or how has it been with you in getting a co-founder to do this? Yeah. So first of all, the way that I met my co-founder, Christina, is that I got as I mentioned, really into this idea of mobile carbon capture and then just tried to understand why no one was doing it. Um, So I did a lot of my own research and I came across her PhD dissertation (laughs) online, which was literally on mobile carbon capture. She was, you know, in academia, everyone had dismissed this idea and she was saying, actually, I think this would work. Um, She got funding from the EPA to test out that idea and was able to prove the beginnings of, hey, this is possible. Um, So I I just reached out to her to ask her some questions about her research. I did not think we would be starting a company together, but we we hit it off. I wrote her a business plan and and we ended up deciding to to start the company, but we knew we needed a third co-founder. I think really for the reasons you're saying, which is we wanted to make sure that the key skill sets for the company were all represented in the founding team. And, you know, she had this background in mobile carbon capture, but she didn't have the background in prototyping early technologies or or mechanical engineering. And so we did this big search and found our other co-founder, Eric, um, who is this just genius mechanical engineer. He was literally a diesel semi-truck mechanic for the first part of his career. Then he got his bachelor's and master's in mechanical engineering. He ended up building electric and hydrogen buses and trucks. Um, So a bunch of first generation, super cool new technologies. And you know, without his contribution, um, you know, it would be impossible to get something like this on the road. You need that kind of brilliance and expertise in bringing new technologies into the world. Um, so, you know, the three of us teamed up and that's how we started the company. Very cool. Do you consider yourself to be more of the salesperson in this endeavor <laughs> or what, what role do you see yourself as playing of the three? My role is to do everything that's not engineering. So, um, <laughs> okay. you know, my, my goal is to allow these brilliant 
engineers who are <laughs> yes. my co-founders to spend all their time building this amazing new technology. And then I go and do sales, finance, operations, fundraising, legal, just everything else to support them. So they can just work on what they need to work on. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's super cool. Well, one of the things that struck me, I mean, we've talked about the importance of travel on this show and how it's a theme that's come up over and over again, traveling to foreign countries, living in foreign countries. And in the beginning, it was just a theory that I had or a hypothesis, but it's really blossomed into a pattern that I've seen over and over again mm. about global travel as being the catalyst or the spark for a lot of these crazy ideas. And I love that your co-founder and sharing her mm. story, she said, I moved to Germany uh, yeah. when I was younger. And in Germany, I realized that, oh, we can live in a way that uses much, much, much less plastic. Uh, there is a way of living that is fundamentally different from the single-use, throwaway culture that's prevalent in the United States. And then she took yeah. that idea back, and that was the impetus for her beginning this kind of work, which I just find to be endlessly fascinating. Have you ever talked about the importance of travel with her or with other parts of your team? Yeah, I think that's a commonality actually for all three co-founders of the company. Cool. So Christina has this really powerful experience um, moving to Germany. Um, I uh, spent all of high school saving up money to uh, take a year off between high school and college, just traveling by myself. And I found that to be a really impactful year. Um, both just in terms of all the other different ways of living that I encountered, but also uh, just in terms of my kind of connecting with the environment and with the planet. Um, and, and similarly, Eric has traveled a lot. Um, he grew up outside of the US and then, you know, since then he's um, he's just traveled the world quite a bit. Um, and, and I do think that's really important. It's, you know, growing up in San Francisco, I know what it's like to be in a environment where there's a bunch of shared values and shared assumptions about the world and to get outside of that and to learn about sort of different ways of living and, and different ways of approaching problems, I think is incredibly valuable. Mm. So that's fast, fascinating. I didn't know that that was true for you. Where did you travel, by the way? Where did you go in um, your gap year? So the highlight of my gap year was that I, I biked across the United States from East Coast to Whoa. West Coast just by cool. myself. Um, amazing. And that was an amazing way to, first of all, just meet people all across the country, but also to experience the incredible natural beauty of, of the United States and to really be immersed in these massive landscapes um, that otherwise I just would never have seen or really connected with in the same way. It's not the same to just zip through in a car. Oh. How long did that take you? How many weeks or months? It took two months. Two months. Okay. And, and literally just by yourself, no support vehicle, nothing, just tent, biking with all your by stuff? By myself. The tent and everything else was, uh, Get out was of attached here. to the back of my bike. It, it was not, I don't know that I would necessarily recommend it. I was at one point <laughs> okay. biking through the Rockies, like caked in snow. So oh there, there were, there, there were some moments that weren't oh. ideal, but, uh, it was, it was an amazing, amazing experience. How cool is that? So it's perspective, a theme that's come up over and over again, perspective on the world, different ways of living, challenging the assumptions that you've always had. This is the essence. So you had an inkling of an idea. You said, why don't we capture this at the source? And you discovered yeah. that one of the greatest sources is, of course, the trucking industry, because as you mentioned at the yeah. beginning, such a large percentage of 
our life as it exists here is powered by semi-trucks, for better or for worse. And the trucking industry yeah. is responsible for most of what happens, especially in these types of large countries that you biked from end to end of, where there's just giant land mass without uh, water or ports. So the United States in particular is a great example of where trucking is very, very necessary because there's no real alternative that I can think of to trucking. And as you said, electric vehicles are a, a solution, but they're far away. And I think you said something on your website like, we need a solution now. So yeah. does this represent, in your opinion, a solution that works now? Is it functional? Is it doing what you hoped it would do at this point? Or is there room for growth? Yeah, this this is a solution that works now. And I, I think that is one of the really appealing parts of this. We're not waiting for five more scientific breakthroughs or another couple decades of basic research. This is we're, we're you know, this is technology that we can deploy on our customers' trucks in the next year. And it's a technology that we need now because we're spewing millions of tons of carbon dioxide into the air every year. And that is why we're seeing these worsening hurricanes and worsening wildfires. Um, it's something that we need to counter now. We can't afford to wait for the perfect solution that's maybe a couple decades away. Um, so I, to me, that's one of the really crucial reasons to start pursuing solutions like mobile carbon capture that are ready to go. Hmm. Well, one of the great tensions that we explore on this show and in general is the tension between activism or environmentalism and whatever corporations are doing. We know, generally speaking, we tend to have a lot of fear or negativity, especially those of us uh, from a certain point of view, let's just say, tend to view corporations as being largely responsible for a lot of the things or, or let's say not doing their fair share in general yeah. of helping solve these problems especially the ones that we all know and love. <clears throat> but one thing that struck me about your messaging is that you said that the trucking industry is actually very open and receptive to these kinds of ideas, which I think probably a lot of people might feel would not be the case. So how has your journey been in terms of getting them to accept this as an idea? We have been greeted by the trucking industry with open arms that I just... I have to speak from my experience. I think yeah. a lot of people have a lot of assumptions about the trucking industry. Um, but what I've seen is that every single company we've talked to, or almost every single one, is is saying, we have been searching for ways to decarbonize our trucks. We, we really, really want to reduce our carbon emissions. We know we're having a big impact on the environment. We just, we don't have a way to do it. We, we don't have a technology that's gonna work. and that's why they're so excited about mobile carbon capture because they they see that this is something that could actually work if you look at the trucking industry just over the last 15 years the industry has actually tried a bunch of different approaches to reducing carbon emissions there was a whole wave of for instance trying compressed natural gas trucks which reduce carbon emissions by something like 25%. Um, there has been a lot of experimentation with renewable natural gas and biofuels. Um, and you know all of those are really awesome approaches. So I, I think we are seeing a lot of um, excitement from the trucking industry to reduce their carbon emissions. And you know it's just not something you can expect some, someone to do if you don't have a solution available to do it. You know, the trucking industry's primary responsibility is to make sure that all of the goods that we depend on in our day-to-day -day lives 
get to us on time um, and reliably. And so, you know, they they can't do a solution that puts that in jeopardy. But what I've seen is that the trucking industry is incredibly open to trying new technologies and new approaches. Um, and it's been a pleasure, honestly, to work with all of the folks who are really, really trying to reduce their carbon emissions. That's fabulous. Are there certain areas that are more receptive, like Europeans, for example? Are there areas that are much more ready to go with this? Or, You know, I think what's most interesting is that it doesn't break down cleanly by geography or really by anything else. In my view, it's just about individual people within these companies deciding that this is a priority and doing it. I think we have this narrative that companies are you know just at the whim of their shareholders that individuals within the companies there's there's nothing they can do they just they have to maximize um shareholder returns in the most narrow possible short-sighted possible uh sort of sense of the word and um i i think that's not true i think that really great leaders within companies can just decide and it's not even a hard decision at this point that hey, it's actually going to be in the interest of our shareholders in the medium to long term if we reduce our carbon emissions and have less of an impact on the planet. It's what our customers are demanding. It's what our shareholders are demanding. It's what regulators are demanding. And I think we're increasingly seeing people who own companies or, or you know, are leaders in companies making that decision. Um, so it isn't really about geography. It's just about those individual decisions that are being made. So what, that brings up a great point. So one of the things that I've struggled with, and when I began this show, I was hoping to inject some optimism into my own life because <laughs> think two years back, <laughs> the climate. Imagine living as I did in East Hollywood uh, two years ago. Pretty bad place to be at a pretty bad time. A lot of things were happening, a yeah. lot of negativity. And I am a fan of shows like John Oliver, John Stewart, all of these, uh, Trevor Noah, The Daily Show. That's sort of the kind of wavelength I tend to generally be on. And I, I can tend to go pretty cynical and I can tend to view organizations pretty harshly, certainly in America. One of the things that's yeah. always struck me is that when I talk to founders such as yourself or people who are in Silicon Valley, is that my cynicism always seems to feel a little bit out of place because there's always more optimism on the other side of this call in the sense that, you know, we should give them more credit. All of the stuff that you just said, which is really nice, we should give them more credit. We should understand that they have these values or that they might have these values. Um, to what degree do you think that that's just a component of entrepreneurship in general or successful entrepreneurship? Uh, is that rosy colored thinking do you think that uh, people such as myself are perhaps too cynical in general or we're, we're too quick to write off these organizations well i want to be clear that i think what i just said has a, a, a potentially an optimistic interpretation but also a cynical interpretation which is okay. that it, you know there's a lot that's up to uh individual leaders within corporations so when you see corporations not taking action that's not really, it's not just because the system we're in is broken. It's in part just because these individual leaders are just not courageous enough or are just not doing the right thing. So in, in it, what I'm saying is it's actually a lot easier for big companies to take this action than you might think. And so to see all these companies not doing it, I think that could be an, a sort of even more cynical view. Um, but, you know, it, there, there really is a flip side, which is that so many of these companies are jumping in to 
to take take on these incredible new commitments and to really earnestly try new technologies. And we're seeing this exponential growth in companies that are willing to do that, um, which is it's just incredibly exciting. Um, and you know, to get get at your question, probably optimism is an important part of starting something new. I mean, you have to believe in things unseen in order to believe that this idea that you have could turn into a whole company and that you could that company could actually, you know, become really impactful and actually reduce millions of tons of carbon dioxide in our case. Um, so I, I think optimism is an important part of starting a company. But I also think that probably part of the reason you're hearing such optimism is that there really is cause for it, which, mm. you know, it may be just, you know, my, my vantage point, but I spend my entire day talking to these huge companies. I mean, we are working with a very large number of Fortune 500 companies, even a couple of the Fortune 10. I spend my whole day talking to these folks at these companies who care so deeply and are, are working so rigorously to reduce carbon emissions. And that's pretty inspiring. That's, it's pretty inspiring. And it yeah. makes me feel optimistic about our chances in tackling this big problem. So I, I think maybe that's part of it is it's, it's how I spend my days. I get to talk to all these people who are working on this and yeah. it's hard not to feel optimistic as a result. Well, it's funny you mention that because I've increasingly adopted a similar thing by virtue of choosing to do this and by virtue of choosing to seek out totally. people such as yourself. I'm now in many more of these conversations that feel positive. And I think just as I wouldn't have found you if I hadn't started the process of, of going to look for people such as yourself. Again, it's a two year yeah. process. I'm still in it. But through the result of trying to seek out, because it, it was a simple premise. I'm trying to seek out people who are actually doing things, who are actually solving things, people whom I actually admire instead of focusing all the time on the people that I don't admire. You know, it's, the news is just so <laughs> many, like, oh, this idiot said something stupid. This idiot said something stupid again. Right. The same idiot said something stupid again. The same idiot is still <laughs> saying stupid things. It's just, that's just what it is. But I yeah. made a conscious choice to say, okay, well, who is actually smart and who's actually doing something good for us? Who's actually trying in earnest? And what I have seen, even at this relatively early stage of doing it, has definitely given me a lot of hope. And again, because of the diversity, the breadth and the scope of different solutions coming from different people of different backgrounds, all aimed to solve this much greater problem. I couldn't tell you how many people I've featured at this point who are drawing down carbon in their own way, but it's got to be at least probably 30, 40, each one with different ideas. One is building a machine. One is uh, f farming algae. <laughs> one is reducing it at the source. There's just so many different angles into this problem. And that yeah. and hearing about all of those has been very educational for me. That's for sure. And to just see that, oh, okay, there are people out there who are taking this very seriously. And, and what you said about the cause for optimism, that has also come up more and more the idea that this is a trend that is heading in a good way, that there's more investor money for these kinds of solutions, that the next startups, just blanket speaking, the next startups from Y Combinator or from Silicon Valley in general, more and more they're going to have this environmental or this eco component attached as part of what is considered a good idea, which is always uh, the big question, right? What is an investable totally. idea? 
what makes something good. And it does seem to me that, and again, maybe it's just because I'm talking to more people like you, but it does seem to me that the tide is changing in the sense of where the money is going, where the opportunities are going. Maybe it's not fast enough, but the fact that you're working with Fortune 500, Fortune 10 companies on this is, I agree, very, very encouraging, especially because they have the power to just flip a switch and then boom, suddenly the trucking industry has changed. Suddenly massive exactly. parts of this are done. Exactly. I, I think that it's more than just us putting our focus on this area. It's it's an unbelievable wave. Like, And I think you can see it in very objective terms if you just graph the number of climate commitments made by big corporations over the last couple of years. It spikes in the last couple of years. It's this incredible exponential growth. I mean, you mentioned Y Combinator. When Remora did Y Combinator, um, we were uh, in the winter 2021 batch, so not even that long ago. Uh, there were very few other climate tech companies in our batch. Now there are 30 or 40 companies per batch working on climate. Oh, um, cool. It's really amazing to see that kind of growth. Um, and I think you're right that the broader investment landscape, there's so many more climate-specific funds being raised and so much more excitement from generalist investors to invest in climate tech companies. Um, to me, the message could not be clearer, which is if anyone is thinking about starting a climate tech company or coming to join a climate tech company, there could not be a better time. This is the beginning of a crazy decarbonization revolution in the country It's and, and in the world. Um, it's going to be on the par of industrial revolution or the computer revolution. And I, I'm just really excited that we're jumping in so early, right at the beginning of this massive wave. You're giving me goosebumps. I love to hear it. That's fantastic. I love every piece of that. And it reminds me of that Shakespeare quote. I can't recall it quite exactly, but you've heard it in various forms from Tony Robbins, all the gurus. But the Shakespeare quote is that uh, the, the coward dies a thousand times before their death and the brave person just dies once right? Uh, basically, <laughs> if we're doomed, let's say if we as a species are doomed, isn't it much more noble or much more valiant to go down swinging, <laughs> to go down fighting rather than just to throw our hands up and say there's nothing we can do or it's hopeless? And that's certainly the attitude that I've adopted because we may say, oh, is it too late? Is it, we have a couple years. Is it too soon? Who knows, right? Whether some, whether their climate goal by 2050, whether we have enough time for that. But yeah. what I do know is that it's just a lot better spiritually and on a human level to go down swinging if that is the case than to just say oh it's hopeless and do nothing right better to try it's, with all it's of also, our force totally and it's more fun as well the, right? the problems that we're tackling are so fun the the engineering challenges are incredibly cool i i mean i don't know a single engineer who wouldn't just like drool over some of the problems that our team gets to tackle every day um, and I think that's true across the climate tech space. It's just, it's such a cool problem. And the stakes are so high um, at the same time. Like, I can't think of better work to be doing. Uh, and, you know, I, I also just want to be clear that it is not too late. Like, I, we, I know that we can solve this. And I think that we absolutely still have the time. We, we're not doing well. Like, we, we need to do a lot more. But... We can still get there, and um, I think that's all the more reason that folks should jump into this space and, and start working every day in whatever way they can to make an impact. 
I completely agree, and I find myself being drawn in as if to a black hole of some sort because <laughs> I'm just sort of zeroing in on this because to me it is the most interesting thing. I've always been a person who hates small talk. I've always been a person who hasn't enjoyed pleasantries in general. I like going to serious things. I like talking about philosophy. I like talking about – I mean, I I think I have a sense of humor, but I like talking about things that matter, and I just find that having yeah. conversations like this about these kinds of things, it's just – it's what does it for me, and – talking about other superficial things or even entrepreneurship in the traditional sense, it, it really doesn't do it for me. Like I could have created a podcast about just entrepreneurship and whoever raised the most money or let's look at Ray Kroc and McDonald's and hold up these traditional founders that you found in historical business book. But I just don't care. I don't care if yeah. somebody made $500 million selling a cheap makeup kit to their followers. I, I mean, I, I can respect them, but I don't care. <laughs> it doesn't matter to yeah. me. And I'm not going to have them on this show. That's not the interest to me. But this type of thing, because it seems to matter and because it seems like we have a choice and because it seems like there is this 50-50, will they, won't they survival arc for humanity and gen- it's like, will tech save <laughs> us or are we doomed? And we really don't know. It's a great drama. It's a great TV yeah. show to watch. You know, it's really fascinating. Like the cliffhanger is just right <laughs> totally. there. It keeps you coming back, and it's it's super exciting. And and also, just learning about what the the tech actually is. Looking at the video and looking at your co-founders and how smart they clearly are, and looking at them, you know, putting all these pieces together on your actual invention or your tech. It's it's crazy to see that somehow that makes sense. Like, oh, we need to we need to take the heat out over here and then so we can add it back over here and then we collect the carbon yeah. and we compress it and all of that. And, and I'm just saying they're like, okay, well, I'm glad somebody knows how to do that. I <laughs> <laughs> never crossed my mind, but I'm glad somebody yeah. is trying. Um, so it, it looks super cool and it's super interesting. And I think my job is just to try to educate more and more people about these types of things to just help spread this message a little bit so that people are aware of what the conversation actually is. Because I just feel intuitively that that message is not out there enough in general to the broader public. It isn't. And that's why I'm emphasizing it so much as well. Um, and, and, you know, I, I will say for the people that are getting it now, I think, you know, getting in early on one of these huge, huge waves is always life changing. And, you know, if you do get it now and if you are seeing this, then that's all the more reason to jump in both feet and try to make something happen um, because the word is going to get out. It's already getting out. We're seeing all this growth, all these new investors coming into the space, all these new founders coming into the space. So it's going to, it's going to get bigger and bigger. Um, and that's all the more reason that there's like the time is now time is running out to be in on the ground floor. Um, so I think all the more reason for everyone to just get in right now. Completely agree. So how long have you been doing this? How long have you been personally on this journey? Um, we started the company about two years ago. So we, we incorporated the company two years ago. And then um, I've been working on it maybe for about three years. Cool. So what's a funny anecdote or story? What's a funny founder's moment? Is there anything particularly unusual or surprising that's happened in the last couple of years? Uh, there are many, many things that have happened in the last couple of years that are sort of unusual or surprising. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's a really good question. Um, I think the, the most challenging part of starting a company is that first stage where you're just 
figuring it out, but you already need to start building relationships and, um, you know, helping people see what the technology could do. It's almost this chicken and egg problem where you need people to believe in the possibility of the technology in order to have the resources to build the technology. Um, so, you know, we were working out of my co-founder Eric's garage for the first um, couple months. And, you know, he was a diesel mechanic for a decade, as I mentioned. So he had a very large garage and uh, like a lot of tools in his garage. Um, I spent a whole day like putting in drywall to, to keep us warm um, during the winter. But we were working out of the garage and then we were talking with these huge corporations who would be like interested in partnering with us. And it's just a funny disjunct where we're talking to these massive companies who are excited about, you know, working with us down the line. And then we're literally in a garage. Um, you know, I think that encapsulates kind of what's required in order to get something like this off the ground. Um, and, you know, we, we couldn't buy a semi truck because it wouldn't fit in his driveway. So we had to buy a smaller <laughs> truck to do our initial testing. But that is, I think, the biggest learning I've had from this experience, which is you really do have to go step by step. We tested, we did a lot of testing on this smaller truck and we had these initial conversations, which then allowed us to get our first facility and buy our own semi trucks and build these larger partnerships with with big companies and now we're into an even larger facility you know it just it's it's the way that these things grow it's it's a stepwise process so you know i think the advice i always give to other folks that are just starting out is to be okay with those steps and and not to just try to jump to you know step 5 right off the bat that makes sense. Do you feel that it was encouraging right away from day one? Was it was there a huge roadblock at the beginning or was it been more or less smooth sailing? Because it almost sounds like pretty smooth sailing, honestly. <laughs> a couple of years, you got some funding, you're embraced by the trucking industry with open arms. Was there any point where you thought it might not work out? Um, I think we've been really lucky to be developing a technology that is absolutely needed by the trucking industry. Um, and there really isn't another good solution for decarbonizing trucks. And everyone really wants to decarbonize the trucks. So it is, I think we've been very lucky. Uh, we, we've really walked into something that's just needed. Um, so it has been relatively smooth sailing, but you know, it's, you know, we always have the same conversations that you and I were having earlier, for instance, about the alternatives to, to decarbonization and, and, you know, what about electric trucks or, or hydrogen trucks? And so I think, um, you know, one challenge for us is just helping people even understand that mobile carbon capture is, it is a category. It's not, we're the first carbon capture company for semi-trucks um, that's actually going to put a commercial device out there. And that's a challenging position to be in. We have to educate regulators and customers um, and investors that this category even exists. So I would say the reason that we've had so much success is that it's it's absolutely needed, but we've had to do a lot of work on that kind of education part. It's not like we just came in and said, oh, we have a better mobile carbon capture device and everyone already knows that this is a sector that exists. Mm. Well, along those lines, you talked about other industries that would be very difficult, if not impossible, to replace with battery or electricity tech, like airplanes, shipping, all of that. Do yeah. you think that outfitting those types of vehicles with your tech is something that could conceivably happen in the future? Could an airplane um, have it, this? 
In most cases, yes. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna say no to airplanes. Um, okay. I, I think it's it's even too difficult to add carbon capture to an airplane. The payload issue is is so great. Um, but for cargo ships or for locomotives or for other forms of long haul heavy duty transport, I think mobile carbon capture could be a great solution. It's something we're definitely interested in. But also there are now something like 10 different companies working on mobile carbon capture for cargo ships. So the space is growing itself. There are all of these folks that are understanding that mobile carbon capture is going to be a really important piece of the decarbonization puzzle for, uh, for some of these sectors. Very cool. So describe for an idiot such as myself, how does the process, <laughs> broadly speaking, work? What is actually happening? I mean, you're hooking this thing up sure. to the tailpipe. What's going on? Okay. We hook it up to the tailpipe. The exhaust goes through an exhaust conditioning system, so we make some changes. And then we flow it through an adsorbent bed. And that's the key part of the process. Inside the adsorbent bed, we have little beads. And the beads, beads have tiny microscopic pores where the carbon dioxide molecules physically get stuck. So carbon dioxide molecules get stuck in the pores. All the other gases in the exhaust, like nitrogen and oxygen, are the wrong size, so they don't get stuck in the pores. They flow right through the beads and out into the air. So we get this clean exhaust coming out of the truck. Once the beads are all filled with carbon dioxide, we then regenerate them. So we heat them up using heat from the truck's exhaust, and when they're heated, the pores open up and the carbon dioxide molecules come out. So we get this pure carbon dioxide coming out of the adsorbent bed and we can compress it and store it on board the truck until it gets offloaded as we talked about earlier. So that's, that's the whole process. And the really crucial thing is that we have multiple adsorbent beds so we can be regenerating some of them and capturing new carbon dioxide with other adsorbent beds all at the same time. So we're never in a position where we're not capturing CO2 coming out of the tailpipe. We're always capturing it with one part of the system, even as we regenerate another part of the system. And that's all happening as the truck drives. Amazing. So as a purchaser of this, can I select which fragrance I want? Is there cinnamon, vanilla, waffle cone? <laughs> that's version two. We're, we're working on it. <laughs> mm, that truck smells nice. Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> that's it it's a great idea <laughs> <sighs> clean air clean exhaust air that's the future that we're all working towards right? exactly uh it's super cool and again I, we'll put the clips up as we edit this thing but there's going to be videos and all of the little samples but the, the tech itself looks fabulous it weighs five thousand pounds which as we discussed is a far sight less than any battery technology ever could be. It's relatively small size and form factor. So next five to 10 years, do you see, like what would be an incredible outcome for you? What kind of adoption would you like to see in the next five, 10 years? Just best case scenario here. Our goal is to make hundreds of thousands of these devices in the next five to 10 years. And, and you know, our goal is to get one of these devices on every single one of the 2 million semi-trucks in the US as well as deploying these devices in other parts of the world where electrification is going to be even more difficult because the grid is not in a position to support charging electric trucks. So we we have pretty high ambitions for um, how many systems we want to deploy, um, but we're making really great progress. We're already building out our first assembly line in Detroit, Michigan, which is where we're based. And um, you know we're going to be 
we're going to be churning out units and getting them on trucks as quickly as we can. Our goal, though, is, I mean, if we can get hundreds of thousands of units out there, that's tens of millions of tons of carbon dioxide that we're capturing every single year. So that's that's a pretty amazing impact. And if we can get it on every single one of the semi-trucks in the U.S., that's reducing the entire U.S.'s carbon footprint by 5%, which is a huge chunk of, of the carbon footprint. So that's our goal. We're working on it. And, um, you know, I think... As I've already said, if there are any engineers or, or anyone else that are listening to this that are interested in getting involved, you should apply to join our team. We are growing very, very quickly, and you know we're always looking for super talented folks who really care about this problem. That's awesome. Is it fair to say that Detroit will rise again? Is this the birth of a new <laughs> Detroit renaissance? We, we definitely... We, we don't claim to speak for Detroit or to, to kind of <laughs> represent Detroit in any way, um, but we, yes. we're really, really happy to be based in Detroit. It's and positive, um, yeah. It's an amazing place to be as a cool. company. Fabulous. Well, I think it's incredible. Like I said, it's a very inspiring solution. The work you've done, the team that you've chosen seems to be excellent, and it's not just me who thinks that. The outside support appears to be really good. So I think you've got a great shot at this. I really look forward to getting updates from you in the next five to 10 years, but I, I know it's going to be good. I'm just waiting for that LinkedIn post where you announce something crazy. So, <laughs> and it's like, okay, whew, one problem, one problem getting there. Um, the, you know, we've got just a, a second left in the hour. Would you like to close us out here, promote something you want to promote or a parting word of wisdom? You can wrap it up. I think, you know, I've already said it, um, but my... A parting word of wisdom is everyone should push themselves to do something really hard. It's so easy to do the easier thing, um, but we are in a really challenging moment, both with climate change, but there are also a lot of other big problems. And the solutions to those problems are going to be hard. It's not going to be this kind of easy thing that you can do on the side that's, you know, just it feels good and you're not going to have to, you know, challenge yourself. It's going to be super hard and, and it's going to be brutal at moments. And um, it's often going to involve delays or, or more funding than you, you think you'll need or it's going to be really frustrating. Um, but that is so important to push through um, when you're trying to really have an impact. And I just, I want everyone to know that that's part of the process. Um, and so you should just push through it and you're going to end up having a really big impact at the other end. So I, I, again, just say, push yourself to do something hard. If you feel like you're not doing something hard enough, you ask, what, what can I do to make this harder for myself and to increase the impact that I'm having? Awesome. Great words. Thank you for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure, Paul. I wish Thanks you the best of me. success. Um, and with that, the official podcast is over. 